Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is the Reverend Dr. Frederick Schmidt. He's the author of numerous books, and he holds the Reuben P. Job Chair in Spiritual Formation at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, where he also directs the Job Institute for Spiritual Formation. He's an Episcopal priest, spiritual director, retreat facilitator, conference leader, writer, and consulting editor at Church Publishing in New York. He and his wife, Natalie, live in Chicago, Illinois. We had a great conversation about the upcoming election and a piece he wrote about spiritual truths that won't change after next Tuesday's election on his Pathos blog. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Fred Schmidt. Fred, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. It's good to be here. So, Fred, you wrote one of the most interesting pieces, which I want to get into in a few minutes, about what we all need to do as responsible agents of people of faith or just people that of goodwill after the election. Sure. But you and I were just talking in in the age of internet connection. We had some time to reconnect. And I remember when I was a freshman at Messiah College. Right. And then a sophomore. Um, for the first two years, I, I so I there was a group called the Community Floor in Miller Dorm. And there were some intellectuals that were taking your classes. And everyone was worried that they were becoming liberals or something. And this was back when Messiah College was a little more conservative than it is now. It's now a very mainstream. It's one of the top universities in the country. I mean, by any standard, Christian or non-Christian. But you would kind of come in this like button down blue blazer with an Oxford tie. And you, 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 you blew these guys away. And these guys would come back to Miller Dorm. And I was the novitiate just looking around to learn some things. And your students were blown away by your classes. So my question is like, what, what was your background? This is, we're talking circa 1993. You come into an evangelical college from, you know, you did your doctorate work at Oxford? I did, yeah, with George Caird and Robert Morgan, and finally with E.P. Sanders. So these are, you're you're, you're at the top of the New Testament game in your time, and you come to Messiah College, and what are you thinking when you come in, you move your books in to uh, Hoffman Hall or whatever it is, or after, yeah, insert generic generic (laughs) farmer Mennonite donor name here. What were you thinking when you were like, unpacking your books and how you were going to teach. Well, what I was what I was looking for and it in part it reflected my own background. I was trying to look for a way to help the students navigate a confrontation or an encounter, better word, with scripture that took what I used to call the phenomenology of the text seriously and yet allowed people to go on believing. And when you say phenomenology, you're talking about like normal people usually don't use words like that. But like you're thinking like what your experience is, right? When you read the Bible and Jesus says like, if you even have hateful things in your heart, you're condemned. And what do you do with that? Or or or, 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 or cut your hand off or all these things. Like you're talking about how you feel when you read the text. Well, talking, yeah, you're talking about encountering the language of the Bible, whether you're dealing with hyperbole or you're dealing with metaphor uh, or you're dealing with story where the truth is mythic. In other words, it's, it doesn't lie necessarily in the historicity of the story. It, it lies in the story that's told, in the truth that is embedded in the storytelling. And, you know, a part of the fact that I found myself kind of grappling with all of that, even as a student myself, was that I I grew up, like I think you did, in a mainline uh, Protestant church. I grew up United Methodist. 
Uh, I didn't know anything about seminaries. I ended up going to Asbury Theological Seminary for an MDiv primarily because of the fact that I grew up in Louisville. Which and for it, our listener, for our listeners, a lot of listeners don't know the the landscape. Like that would be center right evangelical mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. that believe the by inerrancy might be strong, but I mean it it it's a pretty conservative view of the Bible. Yeah, it is, and I I you know I found myself in some senses exactly where I found my students in their first year of college when I got to Messiah. I was taking courses with a professor by the name of Robert Lyon, who had worked with uh, Metzger at Princeton, uh, had worked with Matthew Black at St. Andrews, and who was, who was, I think would have called, he would have called himself an evangelical, but he was alert to the challenges that were embedded in trying to interpret Scripture. He, he was alert to the fact that there were differences in gospel accounts. Uh, he was alert to the fact uh, that there were uh, debates about whether some books, uh, Job, for example, was historical or whether it was, it was a, a fiction meant to tell another kind of truth. Those kinds of issues. And, and, and a weird and, thing for secular or religious people, right, is... A lot of scholars think Job is the oldest book in the Bible. I mean, there are yeah. scholars that argue, which is a weird yeah. thing, because you think, well, of course you open the Bible, whether you're conservative or liberal, and Genesis 1 is the oldest book in the Bible. And you're like, no, well, this is a complicated story. This is like a... Exactly. It's like the New York Times. You know, right. We're, edit, right. we're editing something. Yeah. But, but but when you read the New York Times, you don't think it's BS. I mean, you think it's a beautiful edited thing. We love the New York Times, right? It's, sure. It, it's editorially responsible. Right. Absolutely. And and you know what what happened to me as a student was was you know Bob was really helpful in terms of the biblical text, but when I tried to work out the theology around Scripture, is it it's inspired. What does that mean? It's God breathed. What does that mean? Uh, what's the impact of inspiration? What's the nature of the revelation that you find in Scripture? Uh, and I found myself in a place where I got very little help, actually, in that day and age from the systematicians, the, theo- the purely theological folk. At the seminary, I'm I'm sure it's actually quite different these days. This was a long time ago. But when you're saying that, like for our listeners who are secular Jews or just secular people, you're in an advanced graduate level thing, and 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 there are people that are teaching you the Bible, like they're teaching you how to read Deuteronomy or Mark or Matthew or Jude or Second Edress or whatever, and they're 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 teaching in languages and source and, and where the sources of the texts are. And then the people who are doing theology are almost like the Christian philosophers. They were saying, well, these are the people we're hiring to tell us what Christians believe. And, and so they've got to tell us what the Bible people do and the church historians and people to say, well, Augustine thought this and Aquinas thought this. And then they look at the pastoral psychologist or whatever and, and they try to come up with the Christian thing, right? Right. And what you're saying is when they were saying the Christian thing is this, you were saying, well, look, I'm, I've been in the graduate education level and I'm looking at source criticism and languages and Bible, and you're not holding up to no. the Christian thing. Well, and, and the, or to put it another way, the struggle for me, Scott, was that uh, it, what I was seeing in classes that were devoted to biblical studies taught me things about the biblical text that didn't line up with what I was being told by the systematic theologians, the guys who were saying, this is how it needs to be. And so I was trying to navigate the connection between what one group of teachers was saying had to be and another teach, well, other teachers who were showing me things about scripture that said, well, this is how it is. Uh, Maybe the most accessible kind of example uh, to give you would be uh, to to focus maybe on the use of the word literal. A lot of people who talk about how the Bible needs to be will say the Bible is literally true. Well, 
When you begin to study scripture, it's really quite clear that the word literal doesn't work at all in scripture. You are the salt of the earth. Literal truth, your sodium chloride, uh, there's a truth there, but it isn't a literal truth. It's a metaphorical truth. It's a poetic expression. Uh, it's no less true for being that, but it's it's not literal by any means. Or could you re-own literal in the sense of literarily? I mean, literal means the plain sense. In the sense of literal would really mean understanding metaphor as metaphor and poetry as poetry and historical fiction as historical fiction. It would be. And the problem is, is that a lot of people don't use the word that way, uh, especially when you get to something slightly more complicated. I mean, is the book of Job a biography or a story about a real person? Well, it doesn't seem to me that there's any sort of reason to believe that the truth of the book of Job is actually tied to whether or not Job is a real person. In and fact, don't you think we don't want it to be literally true in the sense of we don't want God to like let the accuser do run these experiments? <laughs> well, no, well, that's, probably... I mean, if that's literally true, that's a really terrible story. Because, but, but although maybe it is literally true in, or, or literalistically true in the sense of maybe that's how we got Trump, right? Like maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the baton said, "Hey, what if we had this guy? Let him run for president." Well, you know, when you look, when you look at the literary function of that opening scene, you know, coffee time with the accuser, uh, and you ask yourself, what's the function of this conversation? The function of the conversation is to really sort of set the whole story up and say, "Here's a guy who's righteous, absolutely righteous. Everyone knows he is." Even the angelic host knows he is. But is he that way? Would he be that way if it didn't work out that his faithfulness yielded a family, a farm, wealth, and what have you? And so that's the setup for Job losing all of those things in the story. And the point of the story really is to say, you know what? Good things don't necessarily happen to good people. Be faithful anyway. I mean, it's it's um, it's a contradiction to the health and wealth gospel. Do you think there's it's some a, like rabbinic guy who's? I mean, of course, we don't have rabbis at that time because the oldest book. Of the, do you think no. there's some guy that's sitting writing a story and looking at some guy that's got it all together in this pre-Judaic kind of community, and he's like, "Well." Damn it! I my I my goats are getting eaten by wolves, and this guy doesn't seem to be. I mean, it, that, that that's what I find interesting. What's the insp and I think it could all be inspired, right? I mean, right? God's spirit can inspire, but don't you Absolutely. think there's got to be some story behind this where like some sob is like really getting over on everybody, and he looks righteous, sure, and somebody's got to be thinking who's maybe a pious guy, and he's thinking, well, I'm start writing a story, and then he thinks. Well, gosh, now I'm an ass. I'm, I'm a jerk. I'm, I'm, I'm a real jerk if I say, you know, he's a bad person and I'm a good person. And he just, you can imagine this is Homeric, right? Like it's, a, yeah. it's, it's basically a Jewish Homeric figure that is writing this grand poem. Yeah. Well, and that's where a lot of writing comes from. I've written two books on the problem of suffering and on why, you know, to put it in the the lingo that's used so often, why bad things happen to good people, you know. Uh, and apologies to Calvinists because all our Calvinist listeners, it, and for you guys that don't know Calvinists are, they really think we're all really screwed up and evil. It, 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 the Calvinists will say, "Well, there's no good people." <laughs> so, well, there is, there is, there is that issue too. But of course, you know, the the question still remains: Why does it happen to people? I mean, one of the books I wrote on the subject, and this is just apropos of your comment about what might have prompted Job. Uh, one of the books that I wrote about the problem of suffering, I wrote in the wake of my brother's struggle and eventual death uh, from a brain tumor. I'm so sorry. And uh, in a way, it was a means of kind of processing my own grief. In a way, it was trying to make sense of the kinds of things that he was told. Uh, he was a hand surgeon, had a glioblastoma grade four, uh, 
lived a lot longer than anyone expected to li- him to live. But he had people who came along and told him, you know, this is a blessing in disguise. God's got something great in mind that's going to come out of this. And my my brother's response to that was, look, I'm a 50-something-year-old hand surgeon mm. with the use-by date stamped on my head, almost literally. <laughs> mm. uh, what is it exactly I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Was now he a religious that I can't believer? Practice as a surgeon. What yeah, was he was. Belief? He was to show you show you how far part two brothers can get and still get along. Uh, he was a Southern Baptist. Well, wait, you know, I mean, so, there's so, I mean, there's so one some of the brother. Best one brother becomes a Southern Baptist, and the other one becomes an Episcopalian. There's probably a really bad joke there somewhere. Well, there's a great Episcopalian joke I love, where the Episcopalian uh, priest um, he's testing the mic. And and he can't figure it out, like what's going on. He says, "There's something wrong with this mic." And the congregation says, "And also with you." Yeah, exactly. But can, I just want to go back before we get into your Pathios piece, which I thought was fascinating. You 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 talked about this tension in your graduate work between the biblical scholars right. and the theologians. Did you like the theologians? I mean, were were you drawn oh, to yeah. them? Oh well, I was drawn to I was drawn to theology for sure. Um, and I was drawn to figuring out the theological task because uh, there's nothing in either the Old or the New Testament that is a theology as such. Both are filled with theology, but, you know, everything in the in the Old and the New Testament, one way or another, was written to a specific circumstance. It, it wasn't an abstract thesis written in thin air. Or an attempt at it, right? Uh, I mean, would you say the difference for secular listeners or, you know, like, it's a little different than like what Plato is trying to write universally. He's contextual, but he's trying to write in a way that's to every place in all times, right? He's trying to get to the forms. And even Aristotle is trying to do a similar thing, right? They're, They're thinking, how could we get these truths about God, the good, the truth, the beautiful, everywhere? That's not quite the way the biblical writers, right? No, right? They, not at all. But I worked on trying to resolve those questions for myself. So when I began working with students at Messiah, my effort was really to try to help them confront the realities that the Bible presented to them and yet give them a means of thinking about it in a way that was life-giving and and a means of reading it uh, with a with a view to building their confidence that it had something to offer to them spiritually. Would you teach differently now than you did? I mean, gosh, that's got to be 25 years ago or something? Like It's been a long time. So, so imagine you're walking into Messiah College, Blue Blazer, British Education, Episcopal. Like, would you do it differently? Uh well, the scholarships change some, so there'd be those there'd be those changes. But in one sense, that's kind of superficial. Um, I think a lot of what I did back then, I would probably do again. The thing I discovered about first year students was that they had never really been forced to grapple with scripture at that level, and. The way I sort of frame my understanding of what was going on for them is that they weren't really angry. They were afraid they were the ones that were angry, as you as you pointed out earlier on, not all of them were. But the ones who were angry were afraid they were going to lose their faith. And the thing I discovered teaching undergraduates was that I think we all come to learning about our faith with the assumption that the one and only authority in our lives is God, that nothing nothing else mediates the authority of God, and that we have this kind of direct dependence upon God. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are also a lot of what I would call proximate authorities, intermediate authorities, that that really stand between us and a faith in God. So yes, we believe in God, but we believe in God because we believe certain things are true about the Bible, and therefore we believe about God. And what I discovered teaching biblical studies to college freshmen was that when I began to teach them new things, I was teaching them things that pulled away at those intermediate authorities. 
And what they were anxious about, and their anger was grounded in being anxious, what they were anxious about was they were anxious about losing their faith. So, for example, if a student came to class, you know, we'd very often start with Genesis. And a student came to class thinking that, you know, Genesis taught a seven-day creation. And I taught them instead that uh, the first chapter of Genesis was effectively a kind of creed or a kind of declaration of faith in one God, and that what the ancient Jew or Jews who wrote Genesis 1 were saying is that on the first day, my God created your God and your God and your God, and on the second day, my God created your God and your God and your God. What they were saying is, those things aren't God, the God of Israel is God. And, and and probably from a place of disruption, not like it's not like the rabbi, the, the pre the pre rabbinic tradition were sitting around like it, it's probably they're on the run or they're in the exile or in, in some kind of thing where they're we got to write this down, we got to come up with a creed or we're going to lose this thing, right? Like right, yeah. And what my students, what what took time working with my students, and I chose to actually surface the faith question. And that's the thing I did then, and I think the thing I would do now, is I tried, I I began reassuring them that what I was trying to do was not take their faith away from them. I was trying to help them build a faith that could withstand scrutiny, could withstand inquiry, could withstand study. That's interesting because at Messiah College, like when you were walking around with the Blue Blazer, the Oxford Vibe, and I was intimidated by you. I'm a little intimidated now, but like I'm getting, you know, <laughs> I, I'll get over it. I'll get over it, Fred. I'll please, get, please do. <laughs> Dr. Spit, I'll get over it. But it's interesting because I read your stuff now and you strike me as almost center right in the sense of you're not fundamentalist, but you're also not, you don't strike me. On Pathios, you're tagged as progressive Christian. And I don't see you in, in, in the sense of, you're a defender of the faith. I mean, like it's in some places you're getting tagged as a conservative. Yeah, probably so. And I describe myself as an Orthodox Anglo-Catholic. Um, and that's, uh, and that's the way that I, I characterize my faith. That makes you lots of friends. I'm an Orthodox Anglo-Catholic. Oh, all right. <laughs> Check please. <laughs> well, I ended up on the progressive Protestant page, almost purely by accident. When I began writing for Patheos, it was the mainline channel. Right, right, right. And there was this big debate about whether or not to switch to the word progressive, because a lot of people, understandably, were raising the question, you know, can we really talk about this as mainline Christianity anymore when mainline Protestants are no longer a majority voice in American religion? Uh, and that was fair enough, but I was never really enthusiastic about the label progressive, uh, for lots of different reasons. For one thing, I was fairly sure that it was a label that played to a kind of loose set of theological assumptions that I wasn't entirely comfortable with. And in another way, honestly, it felt like a it felt like a stylistic statement, a fashion statement, uh, instead of a substantive theological position. We believe in science. Okay, Christians have believed in science for centuries. Christians have been at the forefront of science for centuries. The author of the Big Bang theory was a Christian. Uh, so, do you find so your, do you, do why you find is this your, you know progressive? Do you, do you, do you find yourself like when you dialogue with evangelicals, which you do often, I mm -hmm. mean, and you go to evangelical institutions, do you find evangelicals is are, are almost seem to you like revisionists as much as progressives do? Like, I mean, it, it, I mean, do you find yourself like a lonely kind of guy, like a curmudgeon? Like, I'm just defending what everybody's believed. <laughs> Aquinas, Calvin, Luther, Augustine. <laughs> You know, like, uh, uh, you know, Justin Martyr. I'm, I'm in this, I'm old school. I'm not a new school G. I'm an old school G. <laughs> There's a case for that, I think. In fact, I, I, and my wife is an Episcopal priest and a theologian in her own right. Uh, we find ourselves talking a lot about that. I mean, if you're, 
if you're an Orthodox Anglo-Catholic, you're a theological duckbill platypus these days. Yeah. Um, Because, and it's not that I don't, uh, don't get me wrong, it's not that I don't appreciate what evangelicals uh, hold to be true. I think evangelicals, sadly, are in a really tough place these days uh, in the United States because they've been they've been co-opted and and plastered with a label that not all of them deserve. There's a there's a completely different there's a huge world of difference between a Jerry Falwell, for example, uh, and uh, the people I learned from when I was in seminary, a Robert Lyon or a Bruce Metzger, who would have described himself as a as an evangelical in the day. And, and for our secular listeners, you could, I mean, my friend Matt Milner is one of the top art historians in the country. I mean, and he did his MDiv at Princeton Seminary, um, PhD, the university, art history, and now he teaches at Wheaton College. He is among the best art historians in the country. Right. Believes Jesus rose from the dead. You know, he believes the Bible's Leather is genuine, even you know. Although I never understand stand though why evangelicals buy bonded leather. If you really believe it's really infallible, and errant, why don't you spend the extra thirty bucks and get the real leather, where it's like a catcher's <laughs> mitt on your hand, right? That bonded leather betrays the hermeneutic. Like if you really believed it, you'd get the catcher's mitt leather, right? Yeah. I have no idea. Maybe it's a simple lifestyle statement or something. Yeah, but sure. but you Episcopalians, you get the real leather. You get a nice, like, you know. Yeah, yeah, we do. Our problem is, is we don't actually, you know, uh, value the study of Scripture uh, as often as we should. The joke among Episcopalians is that we think the Bible's a great book, but it's we don't understand what the fuss is because it's just a book of common prayer taken out of context. <laughs> So, so I find myself with a degree in biblical studies. I sometimes find myself in a strange place too, even in my own church home. But you do do the stuff with I I I follow your Facebook and you do this men's fellowship stuff and you cook yeah. with the guys and you hang out with them and yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I really yeah, do. that's the best of evangelical Christianity or these kind of things. Like yeah, it is. Yeah, we've got a new program going now called Men, Movies, and God. And oh, we, nice. We started with the Avengers Age of Ultron. And this uh, next month, we're going to watch uh, A Man for All Seasons. So, talk about. I'm, I'm moving out there. Can I do Absolutely. <laughs> I, I'll just be, you know, I'll be the custodian. I mean, I'll like work my way up. Uh, I think you'd probably have a lot to offer, actually, Scott. I don't. All right. So, let's talk about your piece. Um, okay. Sure. So, this, this really struck me um, in contrast to. There were several election pieces that really I, I, I thought were uh, extremely unhelpful. Okay, this was a helpful one. Um, well, she had kind of six truths that, like, whoever you vote for, and I don't know who you're voting for. I'm sure it's like maybe um, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> that sounds like an idea. Yeah, it's a possibility. <laughs> uh, your first one is the world will never be what it should be. Right? Like this is. Right. Don't you have to think this if you're a religious person, even if you're not Christian, right? Isn't this the religious impulse? To to think that it's not going to be ever be what it should be. Right, right. I, yeah, I think that I think that's true. I th- although I think that magical thinking uh inserts itself into the way that we all think about life. Uh and and sometimes it's really difficult to distinguish between a valid kind of hope and magical thinking. Uh, let me see if I can explain what I mean. I there was a a book years ago by a man by the name of David Bridges who wrote a lot about transitions, and he explained that he thought that people needed to learn uh, the difference between being disenchanted and disillusioned. And he mm-hmm. said people who are disenchanted going into a new situation or electing a president will typically come into those situations with magical assumptions about what can be accomplished, about what the relationship will be like, about what the president will do, about the differences that will arise out of it all. He said, people who are mature 
become disenchanted. They measure the reality and what's achievable against the magical assumptions that they have. And they they chart those magical assumptions. They they turn loose of them so that they're more realistic in the way that they think about what can be accomplished. People who are disillusioned, on the other hand, uh, Bridges says, are are people who they can't get over the magical assumptions. They're the people who get married four or five, six times, looking for a relationship that's filled with the magic they assumed it would be a part of it. They go from job to job to job to job looking for the perfect place to work. Or four years after four years after four years, they expect a president who's going to heal the oceans and make everything come right in terms of people's lives. So I think, I think, so, so I think you're right. I think we should be realistic, you know, about the extent to which the world's broken, but I don't think we always are. And do you think this is a place where it's interesting as, as I was reading your piece, I thought you're a guy that again, strikes me as becoming kind of more conservative over age or that you're again, you're center, right. Um, but you also have a radical openness to the world and human experience. You 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 kind of have a Chestertonian vibe. Um, but you but you you would probably say right. You could find this in in any deep transcendent faith, right? Like there'd be a uniquely Christian way to find it. But right. But you could anybody that has access to transcendence could could access um, this the first axiom, right? Like yeah. Should be able to. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to axiom two. Okay. You and I have responsibilities, and those responsibilities cannot be discharged by electing the right person to do our work for us. And so you say, like, we can't have the paterfamilias. We can't, like, say, oh, my gosh, Biden's going to come in and fix the world, or Trump's going to be like, it's going to be even greater again. It's going to be fantastic. Second Corinthians, two Corinthians, five. I'm a 50-50 guy. I mean, you're saying like, like these kind of things are just, it's abdicating. I, I think what you're saying, right, is abdicating human responsibility, what we're created for. Exactly. Exactly. There's a kind of profound immaturity wrapped around the idea that we can elect someone who will discharge our responsibilities. From a Christian point of view, I mean, that's not what we're called to. Uh, we're called to actually come alongside Christ to be companions of Christ, uh, to do the work of Christ in the world, uh, to be light, to be salt. Uh, And are political choices important? Sure they are. But will they they actually exhaust what we're called to do as human beings? No way. Uh, And I think think part of the reason we're there these days is because politics have really become a substitute religion for Americans. You know, it's, it's a, it's amazing. And there are studies, sociologists across the board talk about the extent to which people will uh, carve up their relationships and carve up their families over political differences. It's, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's really amazing to me. We, we sort of did away with fire and brimstone teaching, and we did away with preaching that we were going to send people to hell. But now, you know, we're willing to send people to a metaphorical hell over the differences we have in politics. So do you think the most inclusive thing we could do is get a dating app where we were <laughs> dating, having other people from other parties dating each other? And just, you know. Well, that might be a cure for it, I think. You know, Brett Weinstein, uh, who taught at Evergreen, lost his job out there in Portland, Oregon. Uh, He actually worked on a project uh, for part of the year this year where what he was hoping he could convince Americans to do was to elect one representative conservative and one representative liberal and make one president and one vice president, and after four years, flip the positions. I love and it. Have, and have the have them trade offices and take another four years. All right, let's move on to number three. Okay. You and I will be hurt. We will all struggle, and we will all experience losses. 
And this is hard because we're taunting each other sometimes, right? And like it, it makes the more we taunt each other with cable news clips and we we text each other like, oh my gosh, your candidate sucks and people that we're actually connected to and you, you sometimes like text these awful things to, we're all going to be hurting like and on Wednesday. Like that's the the reality, right? We're all going to be hurting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't and I don't think that the election will make one bit of difference in that regard. The other thing I think we've got to remember is is that no political choice we make is actually going to resolve a lot of our existential problems. It's not, you know, when you begin to actually look at what people struggle over and what they need to thrive, so very little of it has to do with issues that politicians can address. And so we're folding into actually issue number four. Mm -hmm. As such, life requires courage, endurance, and faithfulness from all of us. I mean, I feel like you're kind of merging. We're hurt and the response to the hurt is not more partisanship. It's it's these kind of little things about like making your bed, loving your kids, teaching your classes, like being nice if you're a barista, if you're a congressperson, don't take the easy like bribe like le- level thing of special right. interest. It's a- everybody's agency at some level where you have agency, right? Exactly. Uh, the way Jordan Peterson puts it is pick up your cross. Yeah. Although, live your, have you ever live your have life. you ever have you ever seen Zizek debate Peterson? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like the weird thing is Zizek understands Christianity, and when he ta- when Zizek talks about the cross, Jordan Peterson's like, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, that's the blind spot in in Peterson's work is that I think he gets I get I think he gets a lot of the sort of profound truths. But he's still working away at understanding the vocabulary. And I, the thing I don't think he reads a lot of is probably Christian theology. Right. So, and what Zizek gets, like, I feel like exactly. Peterson has never grappled with the cross and the resurrection. Zizek gets it. He's like, I don't believe it, but I like to preach it because Paul's the ultimate Marxist. <laughs> <laughs> like, I find Zizek so refreshing sometimes because he's like he gets the paradoxes of christianity and like peterson if you just read a little bit of um zizek you'd get it <laughs> probably so <laughs> or a little bit of fred schmidt <laughs> uh, but let's like- go on to five now this is the most controversial thing i think okay well it's not controversial in the sense of you're writing for christians but i i'm, I'm wondering how we i'm always trying to think because the listeners to the podcast are from you know, right. all different kinds of backgrounds <laughs> Right. So you say the locus of God's saving work in the world is the church, the body of Christ, not the body politic, right? Right. And you're saying, like, basically, in the Christian story, it's the church that saves the world. The church is the body of Christ. He's married himself to this surly, motley crew of weird people, right? Like, that are all over the place. And would you translate that to, like, if you couldn't get your head around the resurrection of Christ or something— Get your head around like the thing that makes you believe in your own community or something. I mean, how would you how would you translate this? And I'm with yeah. you on this. I'm in a, right. I'm a conservative. Yeah. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I even believe the Bible's leather is genuine. But I mean, but what would you do? Like, how would you translate that to a well, wide spectrum? Yeah. Well, this this passage, you're right. I mean, I was I was writing for Christians, so it has that focus and. Uh, what I'm trying to say to Christians is that from a Christian perspective, the way that we understand justice and we understand mercy, we believe we find in all of its perfection in God. That's, that's our window into what justice is all about. And so believing that and believing that we've been baptized into the effort of, of making that a reality, uh, the church is the place where that witness gets done. Now, I don't mean by that, and maybe this helps get to the get to the question for broader readers. I don't mean by that that Christians ought not to make common cause with people who believe in other gods or who don't believe in God at all, but believe in treating people uh, with dignity and with respect, or believe in honoring uh, their rights. 
And I guess what I'd say to a to a broader uh, audience, and I think this probably is the thing that applies to all of us, Scott, is that you need you need some sort of inspiration that will endure the disappointments that arise out of life, including politics. Uh, if, if you, if you do think that, you know, one of the most important things to be involved in is changing the political life of the nation, and that's a, and that's a worthy, that's a worthy goal, and you don't believe in God, you've still got to carry yourself somewhere deep down inside through the potential for cynicism. And 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 to go back to a term I used earlier, disillusionment. Uh, for Christians, that lies in the fact that you know, no matter what happens in the political world, our hope for the world is grounded in our understanding of God. Where for, where are you disillusioned these days? Where am I, where am I disillusioned these days? Yeah, um, I th- you know, if we stick with the topic, I think the thing I'm most disillusioned by right now is the fact that there are very, very few leaders who are willing to hold not just everyone else, but themselves and their own tribe or political party accountable to certain values. Yeah. The char- you know, whether whether it be character or it be a commitment to the Constitution or it be a commitment to due process or it be a commitment to honesty. Uh, what I see people doing in politics, and, and people are doing it on both, on both ends of the political spectrum, they're using these things as bludgeons to discredit the other party. They're, they're not consistently holding themselves accountable across the board to those common standards. So if so and you were like, I think as Americans we really deserve leaders who are willing to do that. She qualified that. I want to know unqualified personally where you're feeling it. Uh, where I'm personally feeling? Yeah, is there anything you would share? Oh, you mean disillusionment just like outside of the pu- the public Outside public. of the political stuff? Yeah. Um by the way, can I tell you something interesting? Yeah, sure. I ha- I'm, I put this on Facebook Live for a few minutes. The kid that led me to Christ in the seventh grade is watching. Tommy Bachman led me to Christ. That's why I'm a Christian. He's watching right now. So, well, good for you, Tommy. Hi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We would never be talking unless Tom um, told me to pray the sinner's prayer. So, where where does it hit with you personally? I I guess the biggest disillusionment I have these days probably grapples around the fact that the church. Um, I don't think has grasped its mission firmly enough. You know, to to go back to this point, um, I think that one of the one of the impacts that the conviction that that our all of our work is out in the body politic has had on the church is that uh, it's infantilized the church. Yeah, the 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 church really ought to be knocking on the gates of hell, <laughs> not spending its time being preoccupied with institutional self-preservation. You sound like a radical post-millennialist. Well. <laughs> you and Doug Wilson. You and Doug Wilson. You, I, you know, like, I wouldn't make a buddy comedy with you and Doug Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can work on that if you'd like to. But, I mean, that, that's probably... That's All right, probably, let's go to numbers. The, that's probably my personal... Uh, disillusionment i would i could work on that with you and doug wilson okay all right let's let's keep that on the list of things to do and so your last thing is in the end we are dependent upon the goodness of god yeah and i think this is one of the most powerful and i'm sure this why you closed it like i mean this is like uh you know my first year at princeton i wanted to study Karl bart and the church fathers and I spent the the year in 19th century German theology. And I thought it was going to vomit in my own mouth. And I loved it. I actually thought it was brilliant. Like, And I learned yeah. about the goodness of God. Like, But this is the, the transcendent kind of reality, right? Like the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. There is a good God. It is. And most people, whether they're in 
you know, whether they're like in bankrupt religion or they're in some kind of their backs against the wall in any other way, or, you know, they're the stockbroker that thinks, oh my God, it made all this money, but like, it's not enough. And they release, and this is the beginning of faith, right? The good God. Right. Yeah. And a hope in God is a different thing than optimism. Optimism, optimism is the belief that circumstances will change. And my Israeli friends say that an optimist is somebody who is not in possession of all the facts, but someone who hopes, hopes in God, whatever the circumstances are. Yeah. This is where hope and is beyond. I think pessimism and optimism are just psychological. Right. Like some of us are going to be born pessimist. Some of, some of us are going to be born optimist, right? Temperamental thing. Right. But hope is, is open to anyone. Right. Exactly. And it will it will crush the kind of ideals of the optimist, and it will crush the cynicism of the pessimist. Exactly, and I and I guess I also finished with it because you know I on November the third there are going to be people who are angry, and there are going to be people who are disappointed, uh, and there are going to be people who are disillusioned. Uh, presidential elections have taken on way too much importance in this country in part because Congress hasn't done its job for decades, in part because partisan divisions have become so intense mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that we've, we have a gridlock administratively that's made presidents operate by executive order. And the, the office now is more important than it was ever meant to be. And American politics have become more important than they should be to us. You know, I yeah. I have to actually make a conscious effort to get off the front page of the newspapers that I read to find news stories about other parts of the world where people are struggling with far less and and are confronting problems and challenges that dwarf the ones that we do. But we've got a case of We've got a case of terminal narcissism yeah. in this country. And I think it's really important for us to remember that this election and, and this country is, is not the center of the universe or the center of the world or the center of, of history. I had a, when I was working at Washington National Cathedral years ago, I asked a colleague to come speak who was a New Testament scholar. And we were driving from, uh, Reagan International uh, down alongside the uh, Potomac and past the Jefferson Monument and the Kennedy uh, Center up to the uh, cathedral. And when we passed the mall, he said, you know, he said, when I was a graduate student, he said, my first specialization was archaeology. <laughs> and he said, he said, I've looked at this city more than once. And every time I drive past the mall, I think to myself, one day this is going to make a great ruin. <laughs> and, you know, it, his observation made me kind of just, I mean, I took a deep breath when he said it uh, because I love I love my country. But as a Christian, I'm also convinced that, you know, this isn't this isn't the end point of history, let alone this election. And I, I'm guessing you really believe Jesus rose from the dead, right? Like I do. It was an empty I, tomb. Yeah. If you don't believe in the resurrection, I think you're really better off looking for a different approach to life. Can I ask you this? Did you vote yet? No. No, I'm relying on all the people who voted early so that voting on the third is easy to do. Are you going to vote? <laughs> yes, I will. Who, can I ask you who you're going to vote for? Will you answer uh, that? I prefer not to say, because I I work with way too many people um, as a as a priest um, that I'm I'm happy to talk about policy. I'm happy to talk about principles like the ones we've been talking about today. My first uh, academic interest was actually political science, so so I'm happy to talk about that kind of thing. But I really I'm a political independent. I don't belong to either one of the parties, and I try to avoid saying who I'll vote for because I don't want anyone to think that I'm kind of branding uh, a particular candidate or a particular party 
as kind of the best expression of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I think actually one of the things we as Christians have to grapple with is that wherever and however we engage politics, we should always feel uncomfortable with the decisions we finally make. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's well said. I'm going to give you one more chance to say who you're going to vote for. No. Are you voting I'm for? Not um, I'm not going to. Are you buy. voting for Richard Nixon? <laughs> FDR. <No. laughs> the the Maryland governor actually voted for someone dead. I think. Um, so all right. I'm, yeah, that's that's, that, but that's an idea. But uh, you know, if I if I write someone in, it'll be someone who's alive. But I don't know that I'll do that. You could vote for me. I mean, I think I'd be a terrible president, but. You know, I, I, I couldn't. You know, I couldn't be worse than Scott. Trump. Scott, the Scott, the the job has been filled and will continue to be filled by people who have as little experience with the job as you do. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Professor Schmidt. This was a real honor. Um, you know, and well, I wish I had the guts to take. I wish I had the guts to take her classes back when I was, you know, a young um, undergraduate. But I was intimidated. Oh, Oh, I wish you had, and I'm and I'm sorry. I hope I didn't contribute to the intimidation. Yeah, you didn't. You that were was, you were humble. You were just you, you had that blue mind. blazer, and and you and all the smart guys were in the classes, and I was like, I was very intimidated. But hey, uh, I, I appreciate. I, I protest too much. <laughs> I um I really hope everyone reads your Pathos blog and your piece, six spiritual truths that won't change with the election. We should like read this every two years, four years, because these are kind of like Augustinian marching orders for the Christian um, weaponless army. We just, we go and march without weapons. We have prayers and hope, faith, hope, and love. Exactly. Exactly. This has been a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. Um, Of course, the pleasure's all mine. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.